Hello, listeners. Today, we are celebrating National Hispanic Heritage Month with a special episode. So let's dive into the stories and insights of five trailblazing Hispanic leaders in the hospitality industry. We've got Santiago Rodriguez, General Manager at Nobu Hospitality. Carlos Garcia, General Manager at Senesta Hotels. Ceci Serrato, Founder of Ceci C Communications. Richard Garcia, Senior Vice President at Remington Hotels, and Laura Barbieri, Executive Life Coach. So join us and listen to some fantastic advice. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. Welcome to another edition of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. Today, we have a very special person here. He is the man from Nobu Hospitality that has no title on his business card because he does so much for them. Santiago Rodriguez, welcome to the show. I appreciate you being here. Thank you very much, Steve, for having me. For, for the people listening, I had a, a short stint. I wish it actually longer. It's actually one of my favorite brands to have worked for was Nobu Hospitality. You know, I think it was maybe not the right timing in the right place for me, but I remember you. That was a great thing. I got to meet Santi. So my first day, you know, I'm assistant food and beverage director. I wasn't food and beverage director yet. Assistant food and beverage director, I get in the lay of the land and I see this guy making coffee behind uh, the coffee bar and the sweatpants <laughs> t-shirt like early, early in the morning, like 6.30 or 7 in the morning. And I'm like, can I help you, sir? Can I didn't know who he was. And he's like, oh, no, I work here. And I was like, oh, okay. And then we started talking. And that's my first memory of you was up early, getting your coffee, and made it a beautiful cappuccino. And it was just a great first impression, just high energy, taught me so much about the brand. And I always loved working with you. I wish we would have had more time because he was in his training. And then he they shipped him off to go... I think the Barcelona, I'm not sure where you went after that. Yeah, then, then they sent me to Shoreditch first for a few months mm-hmm. and then to Barcelona to open the, the hotel here. So working in the, that hotel, the reason I wanted to bring that up is you really learned a lot about Nobu and who he was and Kokoro, right? And caring from the heart and treating people with respect. And that you saw clear from Trevor and Struin to you. It was just like you could talk to anybody anywhere there. And I wish we'd have spent more time together. That's something I look back on. For you and I, well, uh, as you say, it was a it was a tough spot for you because the yeah. whole Miami deal and 
it wasn't, you know. But uh, for sure, uh, it would be great if you could stay longer with us and, and spend more time because uh, it's actually good working with you to see your perspective. Like, you are a little bit like Mr. Chow. You were very <laughs> analytic on everything. And I love working with people like, you know, yeah, you have to follow your heart, but that's when you realize that the heart without the numbers behind doesn't make a lot of sense. That's true. That's true. Who knows what will happen down the road? But for you, you got to, to learn the hotels. What was something you saw the difference? Because it's a big difference now, right? Like me, I got, you know, I got promoted food and beverage director, but I could never break into Nobu restaurants because of you have to start from the bottom and work up, right? The hospitality is a little different where you can come in and make an impact, but you still have to be part of that brand. What, yeah. what do you see it as? How do you see that difference? Because you really are a part of both. Well, I think I think my the major role, it was like uh, bringing together the hotel and the restaurant brand. Because, you know, sometimes, the, you know, restaurants, they operate a little bit different than hotels. And when you are under the same umbrella, uh, you represent a brand. You don't represent a hotel or a restaurant. So I guess uh, they like to have me as being the link between both parts. So trying to explain the so-called hotel people how the restaurant works and explain the restaurant people how the hotel business works. So everybody can understand each other. I I believe in people understand things. I mean, I understand everybody's... You know, I can understand everybody's point of view, but at the end, if you're a client and you walk into a Nobu hotel with a Nobu restaurant, you walk into the Nobu brand. So you expect the same quality of service and the same quality of the product in both the restaurant and the hotel. Yes. So for that, everybody needs to work together and everybody needs to understand what's, what's the other person do it, doing so they can help each other. Yeah, it's interesting because the hotel we were in was tough. You had a Nobu Tower, I guess you'd say, and then an Eden Rock Tower, and so it was two different things going that on was, at once. That was over, over. That was like on top of that, you have another hotel, right? Plus a Nobu restaurant. But I like that lifestyle, right? Because the Nobu lifestyle, the rooms, the product is still one of the best I've ever seen. And I think you know, because now I'm in vacation homes too. I would love to see Nobu get into that world too, where you have like lifestyle vacation home. It'd be awesome. Yeah. You, you kind of have that in Malibu a little bit. We will get there. I mean, the yeah. hotel the hotel we are opening in San Sebastian is only 20 rooms right mm-hmm. on the beach. Oh, so it's um, like that. I think we did a pretty good job bringing that because at the end of the day, the Nobu brand is a food and beverage brand. It's a, it's a kitchen brand. Yes. I think we did pretty good translating that into the hospitality or hotel side of the business. I'll make sure I'm, you can send me there if you need me to check things out for you. Please. We'll bring the podcast over there and make sure we do a live from there. Uh, <laughs> so now you're back in the hotels. You you land in Miami Beach. We spent some time there. You go to Shoreditch. Now you're in Barcelona. You've had man, just a challenging time there, right? You right. get there. So many crazy things. How is it going now? What's, what, what's your life like? Uh, meantime, I, was, uh, I spent a lot of time in uh, Saudi Arabia helping with the openings of the hotels and restaurants there. I spent a lot of time in in Poland, in Warsaw. We opened the hotel and restaurant there in 2020, and we did very good right after, right in the middle of, in the middle of the pandemic. 
And, and again, that was one of these openings where we cannot fly people from everywhere because the whole travel restrictions. So seven o'clock in the morning, you're doing housekeeping. 1 p.m. you're doing the front desk. 5 p.m. you're doing the restaurant. But everybody was doing the same. Everybody was pushing and helping. So it was a great experience. So what's um, next up for you? What, what comes next now that you're doing so many things? Well, I eventually, uh, since we're opening Madrid and San Sebastian, I will focus a lot in those two. Especially San Sebastian is very close to my hometown. So try to focus on those two and maybe more into the operation in Europe and, and let the new generations uh, do all the traveling around. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> Smart, man. I like, I like to stay in San Sebastian working on the beach with my with Marta, my Italian girlfriend, and with my dog. So it's a beautiful it life. It's a beautiful life. Well, now I want to just kind of wrap on this question. You've been truly around the world. You've been working for amazing brands, amazing teams. You've seen so much. If you could go back to talk to 14-year-old Barback Santi, and he was starting out today, what would you tell him? Probably not much because it's, I mean, yeah, it's easy to say, oh, don't do this, don't do that. But from the but mistakes, you learn more than, you know. So I, would say, I mean, to be honest, I would say, uh, scotch on the rocks, please. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I pour, love it. Pour one for yourself. No, because if you think about it, everything, listen, I, I had my ups and downs in business made money, lost money, but everything became part of the of the learning curve. So, yeah, sometimes I made a lot of money. Sometimes I lost a lot of money. You know, it's like in business, uh, and when you lose money, you can't just sit down in the chair crying, oh, I lost money, my partner. You know, you had to see, okay, what I did wrong myself. What, what am I in this situation now? And make sure you don't make the same mistake twice and, and move on. When you walk through fire, keep walking. What are you gonna do? So, but those those situations that are the you know the the ones they they make your character stronger. They make you realize that you're human, and they make you realize that yeah, you, one day you were the director of operations of Nobu uh, restaurants worldwide. But the day after, you can be uh, how I'm gonna pay this mortgage? The mortgage. So things you have to be ready for everything. And when you are very good, when people, when you're on the top, you're not as good as people make you believe you are. And when you're at the bottom, you're not as bad as people may make you feel. When you are always a great company, when you're on top, when you're a manager, director, a lot of people become your friend. But listen, let's uh, have people that only text me, hey, how you doing? The answer is, what do you want the table? You know them. I get that. It drives me crazy, right? You know those people. Money, God bless them. Mm-hmm. If tomorrow you go, they say, oh, I need a table in Malibu. Oh, I'm no longer in the company. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear. Who is the new guy? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So, Listen, I think that's great good, advice. It's a good reality check. Today, I have my good friend, Carlos Garcia, General Manager at the Senesta Miami Airport. Carlos, welcome to the show. 
Thank you very much, Steve. So happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, Carlos, we're going to jump right into it. You, of all things, have had like a meteoric rise. I love following your career, and I think people will really be excited to hear how you did it. But let's start with the very first position. What was the first position that you started with in hospitality? You know, I was uh, I was lucky enough, right, to be hired at the Intercontinental Miami as a bellman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they really, and those guys really took a chance for me because I barely spoke English back then. Uh, so it was an interesting interview, and Rosello and uh, Hilaire hired me, uh, and they gave me that very first position in hospitality, that very first uh, foot in the door, I will say. And so it was quite fun. I still, think of it, I still think of it a lot. Uh, it was one of the, the, you know, the, the best shows I ever had, to be honest. Where did you arrive from, Miami? So you said you weren't from Miami. Where did you come from? All right. Yeah, I, I, I arrived from Cuba uh, around February or so. Mm-hmm. And then I started working on the beach, just throwing cables, uh, electrical cables down the South Beach, uh, Ocean, there in Ocean Drive. There was a small um, uh, apartment slash boutique hotel that we're building. It's no longer there. And I, I threw a lot of electrical cables in, and it was, it, was, it was not as fun as working in hospitality, I can tell you that much. All right. So then you get to the Intercontinental. They hire you. You barely speak any English, so they take a yeah, chance on you. They really, they really did. I, I'm always thankful to those guys. And you start as the bellman. Right. That's correct. Yes. What do you remember being at that hotel on the first day? How was that first day? Do you remember it? You know, yeah, oh, very much. You know, I was I was kind of nervous and excited at the same time. You know, because I never worked in a hotel before. I didn't know exactly how things worked, uh, especially in the U.S., Miami. It was a little scary uh, in in a sense. I remember it took three buses to get there. Woke up at four a.m. in the morning uh, just to make it to seven thirty for orientation. And I get to the place and I didn't know exactly how to, how to get in, where to go. And, you know, those guys really make it easier. They took me to HR, for the paperwork, started working that same day, gave me the, the, the uniform and everything else. And they just just uh, threw me out there, uh, basically. And, uh, you know, Mark and Henroy and all those guys really, you know, took me on their hand and really showed me the ropes. But it was a very exciting moment. And it was definitely an exciting day for me, per se. And as you learn things through, it, it takes you back once in a while and how, how incredible those days were. So you start to make your move in your career there, right? You grew pretty fast. So what happens after Bellman? Where do you go from there? I really wanted to go into the, I really wanted to be a manager, the, the front office world and everything else. I really wanted to see how that moved on. So after about two and a half years as a Bellman, I, um, I sit down with my manager and say, hey guys, you know, I really want to move up. What's the best chance here? What, what, what do you think I should do? And they say, you know, we have kind of we have a great position here as a butler in the club lounge, which I really think you should take. It will be great for you because I speak fast now. Before <laughs> it was just like a rocket. Uh, people did not understand half of the things I will speak uh, because I was I've always been very impatient. So they say, you know what, butler, I think will be best for you. You have great contact with the clients. You'll be exposed to the club lounge, the VIP area, and stuff like that. But at the same time, there was another position as PBX, uh, answering the phones. And you know what? And I said, you know what, guys? I, I know you think this will be best for me, but I believe I, I should go into PBX. And the reason why is because I, I, it will hone my English a lot better. Uh, it will help me to kind of take a step back and, and learn how to speak a little bit more to our guests over the phone. And, you know, they, they took another chance uh, because, again, English was still not that great. And again, I will speak very, very fast. So imagine this, this energetic, uh, out of the world, Cuban guy speaking on the phone to the guests. Ah, you know, can we, can we imagine that? 
Right, exactly. Uh, so they really just took it on and they gave it to me. And I was there for about eight months, give or take. And it was a lot of fun, a lot of overnights. And definitely helped me a lot with the English and the and the keyboard and, and, and learning how to type well on the computer and stuff like that. I love it. So people really, when you answer, got the real Miami experience. Well, talking you know, about I always answer very excitedly, right? So people yeah. say, oh my God, this is the hotel. This is it. This is the thing. Uh, so I they really it. like it, believe it or not. All right. So PBX, then you start making a move, right? So you get your PBX experience, you start picking up English, and then you start to move up into yeah, the supervisory I went, role. I right? went to the, and then I went to the club lounge, mm-hmm. um, but no longer as a butler, I was an agent. Right. And I was there for a little bit. Also amazing because the club lounge in hotels is like you're running your own mini hotel. And uh, in the intercom side, there's 137 rooms give or take. So you'll be able to charge and manage those type of guests, give an additional perspective on service and high and, and uh high-end and you know upper scale luxury that guests offer by being there. And that was amazing, that was great. And then I became supervisor of, of the club lounge, which again was an amazing opportunity, uh given the people that came before me and those amazing individuals that really put the continental name and put the club lounge name forward, those very repeat customers that know your name, that see you all the time. It was great. That was great. And then you start doing so well there, right? This is when I started kind of hearing your name because I started hanging around the Intercontinental around this time. They were recruiting me around that 2012. But I remember meeting you as a, an assistant manager in the front office, right? Wasn't that's that right. the next yes. step? That was, my, that was my next step. That's correct. Right. So you make that move, but that's the first time as a manager, right? That's like correct. I'm a supervisor right. in the club, but what was it like becoming a manager for the I, first time? A lot of hours, I can tell you that. Yeah, what is the a biggest lot, difference for people? A lot people? of hours, a right. lot of hours, a lot of hours. But it was another incredible experience as well. You'll just learn a little bit of everything, right, everywhere you go. Um, but in this one, it really allowed me just to connect a lot better uh, with a lot more people, uh, especially the, the the colleagues, the employees of the, of the hotel, because you start to do schedules and you start to familiarize yourself with that and dealing with multiple challenges. Also, the overnight was a great school, right? When you start doing system manager, they put you in the overnight for a little bit to cover shifts and stuff like that. And it, that one really put into perspective how to run a, a hotel at night because you're by yourself, basically, right? You're 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 there. You're the only one there, and you're in charge of the hotel during those periods of time. And you really feel a sense of uh, belonging and responsibility. If something were to happen, right? You, you're you're the guy. You're you're the person that's going to respond towards that. And we have, you know, we have multiple stories. Guys that will break the windows. People that unfortunately, you know, this they go to hotels and. Uh, they're not well, right? They need some help and they, they try to make rash decisions when they're in the rooms and you call the police and you try to help them out. Cameras. I remember we were trying to do a show at one point, uh, 24-7 hospitality with the same people that did the airport shows. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was actually quite good. It was actually quite good. I, I uh, did not regret that time at all. And I spent a little bit of time there as well in that position. It was lots of fun. Ultra, oh my God, Ultra's coming. Yeah. And the Ultra days and the Intercon, you know, Doing as 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 an MOD, wow! For for listeners, the Ultra Music Festival is probably one of the top three music festivals in the entire world, and it takes place in downtown Miami, right outside the Intercontinental Hotel, right in front of the hotel. And so, basically, you're in the concert. And so, just imagine having the whole whole building shakes, the entire building shakes. You're dancing all the time uh, with the guests just working there. So I can only imagine the stories of being the overnight MOD during Ultra and having Carlos Garcia come back. My friend, my friend, more than once, right? We evicted a bunch of people. People would just pass down the stairs. 
they couldn't even walk. Yeah, intense, intense. Yeah, no, it's a great, a great place for a lot of fun stories. But so now you're there, and you do something that's a little bit interesting, which is different than a lot of people. You kind of were starting out in multiple areas. You've done rooms by coming through Bellman and PBX. Then you go to the club lounge. There's a little bit of food and beverage mixed with rooms, rooms with assistant front office manager. But then you jump fully in to food and beverage. So you know, it's it's, it's, it's actually quite a funny story, and I, I I try to tell it as much as I can because you know you just never know what life will throw at you and 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 what you think you will be. Right? You know, my, my goal. I was always I, I always wanted to be a GM, right? I always wanted to be a general manager, you know, very racial focus there. It just this was it. And I wanted to get there through the room side. You know, I thought that my my, my career path would take me there through rooms, right? I, you know, MOD, I wanted to be an assistant director, I wanted to be rules division, and then I wanted to be a GM. But then after a while, I was kind of tired of the same, right? And I didn't want to be at the property as much anymore and, and in front office. So I, I, I come to my boss, back, back then it was Lee. I said, hey, Lee, listen, I, I, I want to move. I, I really, I want to move. I want to do something else. I want to go to another hotel and try out. I want to see if there's a promotion for me out there, and I'm going to just jump on it. And I started research, researching, like, looking for opportunities and stuff like that, especially out from Miami. I, I just wanted to move to the hotel. Um, and then an opportunity came at the Intercontinental in Atlanta. There was a, a, a sitting director position there open. I applied, went through the whole interview process. As we were getting closer to decision making, Danny Estevez comes to see me. And I said, hey, man, you know, I heard that uh, you're applying elsewhere. You, you're trying to leave. You know, have you ever thought about doing FMB? I said, you know, Danny, I, I never thought about it. It's really not my thing. I like rooms. I like guests. You know, I like all that thing. I like the responsibility that comes with it. It's just, it's just what, what I want. They say, you know, I get all that. That's great. It's great. But you know what? You should really give it a try to food and beverage. I think you'll do great. And uh, you have the right personality for it and the drive. You should really, really consider it. And, you know, it will be a little bit more money. You know, and you're very young. So if it doesn't work out, do the thing you were going to do anyways. You know, but give it a chance, right? Give it a try. Do it for a year. And you know what? I say, you know what? You're right. I'm young. I have. I can spare a couple of stuff. You know. I. I really think I should give it a chance because you know it will be a great experience for me anyway. And there was this little restaurant by the pool called Blue Water Cafe that needed a manager. And he said, "You know what? Just do the Blue Water and try it out." And I took the position. And man, I cut the F&B bag, and it was one of the best decisions I ever made. So for listeners, Danny Estevez was food and beverage director there at Intercontinental. Now he's a very successful general manager uh, with the great Western guy, Great guy, great guy. And well, I'm going to tell you, you think Carlos is high energy listening to him. Danny is just as high energy. So you get these two guys in a room. <laughs> it's like fireworks going on. Crazy up. stuff, man. Crazy stuff. <laughs> so you've got Blue Water at the pool, right? The, the cafe, which is a beautiful pool deck. It's a good place, I think, for a lot of people to learn. Yeah. And then... You continue journeying through food and beverage. So Toro Toro comes knocking, or do you go ask for it? How does that happen? Actually, uh, Toro Toro did come, did come knocking. I, I, I rose the revenues quite significantly uh, in Blue Water. You know, budget numbers up the wazoo. It was great. They were very happy with the performance. I was very happy with what I was doing. I realized that was the right change for me. Uh, not necessarily having to go anywhere else. Uh, this is it. This is what I needed. And so... Um, the number two 
Well, actually, the number one in Toro had just left, right? And then the number two I get, have gotten promoted to number one, uh, which is Natalia, another ama 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 amazing girl. And then uh, she, they say, hey, you know, we have this open now. Do you want to take it? And again, the energy thing comes into play again. They say, you know, I don't know. This guy's kind of crazy. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't be the right fit. Or Toro's kind of high end. You know, Carlos, do you want to do it? They say, you know what? Let's do it. And again, they put me into Toro and another amazing uh, story there. Revenue's great. TripAdvisor, amazing. We got into number one, you know, open table rankings. We're like the number one ranked uh, restaurant in the Richard Sandoval portfolio uh, of restaurants for a while um, in, in open table. It was fantastic. Uh, yeah, and, I uh, remember, yeah, Toro Toro was like the number one restaurant in the city, was ahead of okay. Zuma, was ahead of all these places. To be yeah. honest, a, a lot of that uh, was because of that. right? He really pushed, the, pushed us through. He really wanted us to do great. And what mm -hmm. saved us the first time was Miami Spice that summer, right? It was very, you know, opening a restaurant, you know, it's incredibly hard, very, very hard. Uh, it's just a lot that goes into it. And at the beginning, it wasn't doing that well. Uh, we're trying a lot of different things. But then when that summer hit, with that very first Miami Spice, that's when we took off. Yeah, and Miami and Spice with the, the fixed menu is really helpful, right? Like kind of like set menu, it, come try and, it out. It got a lot of people to come to the restaurant, right, and try it out and, and, and uh, fall in love with it. Uh, and that's really what made it took off after that. Um, so incredible things, incredible numbers, like $8 million uh, a year, amazing stuff. You know, I'm very high energetic, you know, really driving, upper scale um, settings, but at the same time, lots of fun, DJs every weekend, happy hours of the Wazoo. I mean, really, really fun place. Yeah, and that's what also showed me too. I don't think I've ever told you or Danny this, but it shows how important the leaders are in those kind of restaurants in that kind of space because once you all left they couldn't keep the magic going right yeah it, it, yeah it's 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 been hard after that it really right? has because you need people with that high energy that you have that danny has that natalia had but the caring so a story because i'm you know usually i don't do this but i want to share a story about carlos because this is what i remember you right now i remember meeting carlos at the front office and all of a sudden he's in toro toro and i was being recruited to work there which I had turned down and now I had my own company staffing the hotel and you know, they treated me, I say in quotes as a VIP, but Carlos man was everywhere. Anything that anyone needed, he was there. He would bouncing off the walls, but in like a elegant way is how I said it, it was almost Absolutely. like when you see the swan on the water and the feet underneath cruising. That's what Carlos reminded me of. Cause he was elegant walking through the room, but everywhere, anywhere you looked, you all right, you need anything. What can I get you? Oh, I remember your favorite drink. You'd walk in, he'd have it for you. It was incredible. So I wanted to brag about you a little bit. Thanks, then, thanks. I really appreciate it. As we continue the talk, I, I lost a little bit of connection with you, and I'm excited to hear how it continues on. So we continued working together a little bit as you progressed from Toro Toro. So not many people make that jump again. So you went from rooms to the restaurant, and then you go into banquets. That's right. How was that transition? Was that a big you difference? Know, I, I wanted to go to banquets a lot uh, because after being FMB for a while and you know, such a big property, you realize that you, you know, the next step for me then will be being a director of food and beverage. And um, from my perspective, I really needed that banquet experience uh, because it's just a whole different ballgame uh, in regards to hospitality and, and, and FMB. Restaurants, one thing, banquet is another animal, and especially in that property, you have 100,000 square feet of meeting space, it just never stops. And I really wanted the experience. So I told Danny, hey, can I, if you have an opportunity, can I get it? 
and the opportunity presented itself, and they promoted me to assistant director of banquets, and I took it, and it was fantastic. I mean, it was really, really great. You know, it's just FMB at a larger scale, and you start to really manage a lot more people. You know, think about yourself in terms of a lot, you know, multi-million dollar deals versus uh, you know, catering piece of business in in the restaurant that's you know just smaller um, in magnitude. So. You're really start negotiating heavily there, and you know again deals with the beverage guys, right? All of that really comes into play, and it was great. It was fantastic. What would you say the biggest difference? So someone maybe who's thinking about making that jump, the biggest difference between a restaurant and then jumping into a gigantic banquet operation. What's yes, the difference? You gotta always think about you're managing a restaurant and you go to managing ten restaurants at once for one Friday night. You know when you have two three hundred covers, you're gonna have then three thousand that one Friday night. And then you gotta go home, have a great time. But it's basically that. Just scale scale yourself ten times. And that's what banquet is. That's true. And then look, you did a great job there because this hotel loves you. They keep moving you up. They right? did love me. Those guys were great to me. So what happens after that role in director of banquets or assistant you know, director? I, banquets? Uh, the assistant director of food and beverage uh, uh, got promoted. He took another, a position on this from Joel. He's the, the director of food and beverage now, the Intercontinental Doral, great guy. We talk once in a while. And then Danny says, Hey. You know, I had this position open. Do you want it? I said, absolutely. This is the next step for me. I, I, this is what I really think I should be doing next. So I was given the number two in FMB position at the property, which is it's amazing. Uh, it's a great opportunity. Very, very thankful. So I took it. But the director of food and beverage, which was Danny, the same month that I took the position, left. That's hard. Yeah, you know, I, I really feel it was a very uh, emotional goodbye that we did for him. We made like a gold ball, represent Rotor, and gave for all the years. And he went to the Trump around if i'm not mistaken yes he did but yeah you know i, I said oh man you know i was my mentor had just you know in fmb it just leaves right what's next what's, what's what's gonna happen next but it was still you know you 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 fly through that and you think about all the things you've learned and how you can you execute them better and you think of it as a challenge and you push through yeah so how was it a change that you know i've been through that a couple of times where I'm you sure, get I'm no sure use to someone oh, yeah. right you get used to having your leader or a mentor there and then a completely different style comes in. Was that a style that matched you or was it something that was just different you know, than your we, style? We didn't click well because you're used to working with a person and it really checks you up, right? You're used to working with a person that has your same um, mentality, same way of working, uh, same drive, you know, like let's make this happen, let's do this. Think about the impossible and how can you make it happen, right? Just such an exciting thing. And then, you um, you get placed with uh, with a boss, right? That doesn't share that, and you have to adapt. Right? You have to adapt. That's how you have to do. It. You cannot find the current. You just try to make it. You just work with it and see how you can you ride that wave uh, to make sure you make the best of it for the property, for the company, for yourself, and that that's basically what what, what I did. Today, I'm excited to have my friend. Ceci in the house with us today. Ceci is the founder of Ceci C Communications. Ceci, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's nice to talk to you on this side of the camera. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for having so, me. So I want to talk now how you get into the real world of hospitality. How did you find your way into your host first hotel? Got it. So... I mean, I've always loved traveling. Um, I think that as a, as a kid, I wasn't really exposed to it as much. Um, and so as soon as I was able to on my own, I was always like planning trips. And that's kind of when I fell in love with travel. 
a couple of agencies that I worked at um, focused specifically on the travel and tourism industry, but mainly the one that helped me kind of get my foot in the door with travel was an agency that was actually based here in New York, but they had an office in Fort Lauderdale and um, they had me working on the American Express travel account. Um, and they had a couple of resorts down in, in Florida as well that I got to, you know, touch on vaguely. But I mainly worked on the American Express travel account. And I honestly hated it because I was basically talking about how you could spend all this money on your card and redeem all these points. And I was pitching business and finance reporters. And it, it just wasn't exciting to me. I honestly, I, I, I hated it. But at that moment, there was an agency down in Miami that was recruiting because they had just won a very big piece of business, which was the Mexico Tourism Board account. And th that basically that account gets staffed with almost 25 people because it's such a massive account. You basically are in charge of promoting uh, Mexico, the entire country of Mexico, which is obviously a very big country. And so they were looking for someone that had travel experience, but that was also bilingual because obviously with it being a Mexican client, like you, you needed to be able to communicate with the client in Spanish. And so I had a recruiter reach out to me and I was like, sure. I didn't even, I walked in there not even caring if I got it or not. And I, I stayed at that agency. I got the job and I stayed at that agency for five, almost six years. Um, and that's when I really got into travel and hotel. I worked on the Mexico Tourism Board account. We went on to represent Cancun, the destination. Um, we went on to represent Panama. We went on to represent uh, Los Cabos as well. Um, once the Mexico Tourism Board account was over, it was a, a contract we had for almost three years. Um, we picked up some other hotel clients and, you know, I, I hit a point where I was like, okay, I love traveling. I get to pay to travel. I was always on a plane. It was amazing. Um, I really fell in love with Mexico, the culture and as worlds will collide as they do in our industry and in hospitality and especially in PR, our friend Linda, who we both know, Linda and I both worked together at the, this agency called the Apple organization in Miami back a long time ago. And then our paths crossed again when she was working on the hotel side. So she was representing this um, Mexican hotel chain called Palace Resorts. And we did a press trip together because I was representing Cancun. And so Cancun, the destination, wanted to bring some press down. We needed a host hotel. We reached out to Linda. Linda said, sure, we'll take you guys. We were having a concert for Shakira was performing at the Palace, at the Moon Palace. And so we brought down a bunch of press and Linda and I just reconnected and we're like, wow, we love each other. This is amazing. Um, and we just kept, stayed in touch. And as the universe would have it, a couple of years later, uh, not even a couple of years, I want to say within with a couple of months after that trip happened, she reached out and she mentioned to me, hey, this is there's going to be a transition in the company. Um, they were going through a rebrand, um, Hard Rock, Cancun and Palace Resorts. The families were going through, you know, a division of brands and there was going to be a potential for a brand new marketing team to take over the palace side because she was going to go over to the hard rock side and she was like i think you'd be perfect would you be interested and at that point i was like yes i was dying to go in house i wanted to leave the agency side agency life is is it's a lot but i also have felt like i got into a point where i learned everything i was going to learn and i had never worked in-house specifically doing pr for one brand and that's how i ended up with my first hotel uh role at palace resorts i basically came in um, I was hired as their internal public relations manager. And the first job that I had to do was basically hire an agency to help represent all of our hotels at the time, because the agency that they had at the time was mm -hmm. going to stay with the Hard Rock brand. We obviously couldn't have the same agency representing, representing both because both, it's a so, conflict of interest. Right. So I want to walk back now. I want to walk it back a little bit. Yes. So 
Shout out to Linda, who's now, I think her title is like area PR director for Lowe's Hotels. And Linda's so, like the boss of PR Miami, Lowe's Hotels. Yes. And so Linda, region, actually. And Linda introduced us. So there you go. Mm-hmm. That's our connection. So Linda, shout out to you if you're listening. And so if listeners, if you ever check out all the social media for Lowe's Hotels, especially in South Beach, she's doing it all herself. So you can actually write to her and we'll freak her out saying, hey, is this Linda? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you could do it. But, and, 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 and Donna, we got to give Donna a shout out because she actually also connected us in yeah. her. Yeah. Dana was with AIC and Eden Rock when yeah. I was there. So the world of hospitality and PR we're seeing is very small, but Absolutely. you're at your agency and I just want to kind of understand the difference. Cause I don't know the difference, yeah. right? You're at an agency and you're pitching stories on behalf of, I guess, a bunch of clients, right? right. And if right. you want to go in-house, why do you need an agency? If you are doing PR for in-house, that's a, that's a very good question. That's a great question. So, basically, when I was on the agency side, I had at a, at any given moment five to seven clients. Not by myself, we had a team, but I worked on seven different accounts. At one point, I had Mexico, I had Cancun, I had Idol Mexico, I had Avis, I had Expedia for Latin America, and then I was working on the Bacardi account, which our a, a different department had gotten, and I wanted to work on it because I just they were relaunching their Cuban beer. Um, mm-hmm. which had never existed in my aunt in the United States. And I was really excited about that as a Cubana, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so I was working on six, seven accounts at the time. And like every single client that you have thinks that they're the most important client and you have to treat them as such. You can never tell a client, like, I can't deal with you right now. I'm on the phone with another client or I'm sorry, I'm on a deadline for another client. Like I can't get that in time for you. You just have to find a way to make it work. And so that's why agency life is you grow so much because you get to touch on a bunch of different industries. Like I also worked on the ESPN account when they were launching Spanish language TV. So, I mean, I worked everything from spirits to digital, to destinations, to airlines, to online um, tour operators. So you really get a lot of really great experience on the agency side, but you are literally hustling all the time. Um, I would order dinner to the office three times out of the week at the very minimum, because I'd be there till nine o'clock at night and I just come back and do it all over. But that was part of, I don't want to regret it. And I put in the work and I, you know, I loved it. I learned so much, but when you come in house, you know, you have to understand we're also coming in. It's not just one hotel. Right. We're, we were a brand and the brand slowly grew over time. So you can't have one person handling all the PR efforts for eight hotels. It's just, you need an agency to help support so I think that that's why it was such a great fit for me, right? Because I've already spent seven years on the agency side. I know the ins and outs of how agencies operate. I know where they try to make money and where they try to upsell you on things. I know how much time it takes them to deliver something. So I just felt like I'm going to be on this side and you can't BS me because I know how long it takes to write a newsletter. I know how much it costs to design a newsletter. I know how much how much time it takes to develop a media list. So I just felt like, it was the perfect role for me. And so when I came on, um, I did, I hired an agency and um, we worked with an agency for many, many years and it was, it was great. And then we just got to a point where as we started to grow and evolve as a brand, started building hotels in other destinations in Jamaica, started building in Los Cabos and started really expanding. It was like, okay, you know what? Like we need to just kind of bring this in house. And so leadership kind of made a decision. We don't need agencies. Yep. We can do this ourselves. You can build your you can build your own team. And I felt 100% confident doing it because I've been on the agency side. So I could operate my team internally like an agency. So and I'll, so that's kind of how that happened. That's good. So I want to go back to when you first started. So you started Palace Resorts 
And you have a tremendous career there. You have 10 years there, which is a long time in hospitality. Yes. And you start yes. off as a public relations manager. So I want to get back to that role. So you leave agency life. Mm-hmm. You join the hotel as public mm-hmm. relations manager. What is that role? What, what do you do in that job? Everybody thinks once you go in-house, it's a little more lax. And like that's kind of the dream, right? When you're on the agency side, like go in-house because it's more relaxed and you're not going to be as stressed because you don't have all these clients. But it, it wasn't like that at all. It was still as time consuming and, and you still had to put in the work. But the beautiful thing about it is that I got to do it on my terms and kind of, you know, each hotel was a client. Let's pretend. And, right. and you've, you've worked as a general manager and you know general managers. So you know the pride that general managers take in their hotels. So imagine having eight general managers constantly down your throat like, hey, what are you doing to promote our new menu at the French restaurant? And then you have a GM at another hotel like, hey, can you help us promote the Santa visit that we have for the holidays coming up? And it was like I had to treat every single hotel as if it was a separate client. And then understanding where the goals were. If we needed to, re- if one hotel needed a bigger push than the other, then that's where my focus would be, right? So in my role as PR managers, kick off at the beginning of the year, I'd sit down with every single GM, talk about their goals, what what was important for them for the year. I'd sit down with each department, whether it was destination weddings, the mice segment, which is very big because you know groups bring a lot of business to hotels. Um, and so that was a very big piece of business for us, the trade market, right? Travel agents working with tour operators, making sure that they're selling their groups and sending them to our hotels versus our competitors. And how do we stay on top of that? So I'd sit down with every single department and say, what are our goals this year? You know, and maybe weddings would say, Hey, we have a really big weddings trade show. It's in New York. There's going to be a lot of media there. Can you help us with some interviews to talk about what our weddings offerings are? Or sometimes it would sit down with our sales director and be like, hey, we really need to push group meetings this year. We just spent millions of dollars building this new arena. We need to fill it. You know, let's go to this trade show. We're going to sponsor the Motivation Show, which was like a very big, an IMAX. They're very big um, trade group shows. And so you meet with a lot of meeting planners and there'd be a lot of meetings media there. So I'd be coordinating interviews with the media from the mice magazines and sit down with our VP of group sales to talk about what kind of benefits we offer groups. So I was basically servicing every single department and facet of our hotels and making sure that we were included in travel weekly travel trade magazines, but then also talking to the consumer. If brides magazine was working on a piece on like the best honeymoon hotels in Cancun, like needed to make sure that we were included in that as well. And so that's kind of how I started. Um, and then I think as the industry evolved, it grew to a larger scale things like influencers, which have now taken over the world. Uh, yeah. And I want to get to that, but I want to yes. stick on one part of this because for a lot of people, like you said, like you would talk to someone like me saying, I need you to get this out there to the world. So people come to this hotel. Right. How do you go about doing that? Do you have to make friends with writers? Do you have to like wine and dine them? Is it just that people are looking for stories? You know, how do you get that story out it, there? It's all of that. It's a combination of everything. Literally, my business is only successful based on relationships. Um, you want to make sure that you're a resource to reporters, right? And a lot of that takes time to build. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, I think I started traveling with a lot of these reporters when I would host press trips on the agency side. And I kind of, you know, became friendly with them and you become friends with them. Cause when you do press trips, like things like that, you re- you're spending three or four days with strangers and you either leave there really loving people or you are like, well, I'm never inviting that person on this trip again. So I think it's a relationships business, but it's also, yeah, I mean, whining and dining is part of it, right? Like how do you get someone to listen to your story and 
you know, if I've not, if I want to work with a reporter that I've never worked with before, and she has absolutely no idea what kind of clients I have and how I might be able to help her, I'm gonna say, hey, can we grab coffee? Hey, can we grab lunch? You know, um, I think that. And once again, we can get into it, but COVID changed things the way we network in our industry now because I think a lot of it now is through social media and um, virtual, right? Um, but I think back in the day, it was a lot of that whining and dining, building relationships. And being resources to reporters, even when they're not necessarily writing about your client. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I had someone reach out to me and say, like, hey, I'm working a story about, you know, a hotel that has pink hot tubs. And I'd be like, oh, none of my clients have them. But you know what? I think I know someone that does. Hey, Linda, do any of your hotels? And so just kind of they'll, they'll always remember that and they'll always come back to you because they know that you can be a trustworthy source for the information that they need. So I think that's, that's part of it. Yeah. I like it. So you're crushing it. You're there December, 2011 to 13 as the public relations manager. And then a promotion comes to director of public relations. Is that something that you sought out or did they come to you saying, Hey, you're doing a great job. How did I have always advocated for myself always. And I'm proud of it. Um, I have always advocated for myself. I know that I always bring a lot of value to the table and I know that, you know, in the industry, specifically in travel, I know I was killing it. My relationships were unmatched. And honestly, I always advocated for myself because I loved the role that I was in and I loved the work that I was doing and I loved the company that I was working for. But I wanted to make sure that I was always growing and not just changing a title, but that, you know, there was also growth on the financial end. Right. Because, I mean, if, if you're not growing, what are you doing? Right. Right. So when you become a director, that's that's your <laughs> first director level job. Mm-hmm. What was the biggest difference for you? The biggest difference was that when the director role came in, we basically completely let go of all the agencies. We had a digital agency, a PR agency, an advertising agency. And so I was literally tasked with building my own team. And that's what I was able to do. And so when the director role changed, it was no longer managing an agency where, yeah, sure, I could tell the agency what I needed from them. But they were an agency. They helped provide services to us, but they were not our employees. So it was very limited into what I could ask of them or deadlines and things like that. So I basically went from managing an agency with a team of, you know, six people. And then I came, I I was tasked with building my team. So that's when I really stepped into a director role. And I was like, I have people under me. I'm literally leading the strategy for the entire brand when it comes to PR, obviously working with marketing as well. And so I had people reporting into me. I mean, I was responsible for other humans and their success and their tasks and their deliverables. And if something collapsed, I mean, it was on me, right? So what, what was that like the first time? Because it's hard for people to be a superstar managing their work. So all of a sudden having to manage others, what was that like for you? Managing others is hard. It's, it's really hard. I think people always like, I, you know, love managing people. Like you have to play so many roles when you're managing people. And I think that helped me grow a lot. And I can't say that I was always perfect at it. You know, at the end of the day, you walk into this role and you're like, okay, I know what I need to get done and I know what I need to do to succeed. But then you have somebody rolling in that's like, oh my God, I'm sorry. Like, you know, my grandma is in the hospital and I couldn't come in. I, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to do that for you. And then it's on you. And then you have to be empathetic, right? Cause you have to play the role of a human. Like you have to feel sorry, but then at the end of the day, you're like, great, how do I resolve this problem? Because I owe this and this to this person. Now I got to get it done. And so kind of, and managing personalities, right? That was such a big challenge for me. You know, um, I'm a very outgoing person, but I realized that a lot of people that I was tasked in working with were introverted and shy and maybe sometimes intimidating by my very 
your aura. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm very direct and I'm very, um, you know, and so managing different personalities, managing, you know, um, expectations also as well, because as that, you know, as it comes when you're, as I said earlier, like every GM is your own little client, you know, sometimes you have to manage their expectations and be like, sorry guys, like, I don't really think your Santa for holidays is press release worthy, but let me see how else I can help you. So managing expectations as well was something that I had to learn as well. Today, I'm excited. We've got Richard Garcia, the Senior Vice President of Food and Beverage for Remington Hotels. Richard, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me, Steve. Really appreciate it. Well, Richard, we jump right in here. What was your first job in hospitality? I'm going to tell you, man, that it's it's definitely unorthodox in the in the higher end world. But my first my first real hospitality job was as a dishwasher at an Applebee's in Miami. Actually, it was in uh, in Doral, and I remember walking in. I think I was 15 years old, and at that point, I unfortunately had a uh, had decided that school wasn't for me, but my dad was uh, was pretty adamant that uh, that you know what I was going to work regardless, right? Um, so I went to an Applebee's, I got a dishwasher job, and opening night, the grill cook ends up walking away, and I have the GM come up to me and he says, "Hey, have you ever cooked before?" And I'm like, "Dude, I'm 15, man. Like, what do you think?" And uh, and he looks at me and he says, "Well, you're starting today." And I got thrown right on the grill, and I will tell you that out of all the positions there probably the one place you don't want to start on as a new cook is a grill where you've got to take temperatures. But uh, I, I did extremely well, apparently. I was never moved off the grill. Uh, became a kitchen supervisor there at 16, and nobody liked me because of that. But that was the first hospitality job, and, and I owe my career to Applebee's, which I never thought I would say. <laughs> that is nuts. All right, so let me rewind this for a second, because I know as a 15-year-old, you know, walking into a kitchen, especially with some, I'm sure there's some grown men in there, some grown women, and you're a 15 year old just to wash some dishes and then to get on a grill is the hardest station. What do you remember about that? What was that feeling like? So I'm going to tell you that, that for me, I think the biggest feeling was at the time. Uh, and as I, as I mentioned, you know, look, I, I had, I had somewhat of a unique childhood and, and, and I decided that at 15, I was bigger than school. And, and so I think walking into here, I kind of had an attitude and I kind of had an ego that, you know, yeah, I should be the grill cook, right? Or I should be the dishwasher, right? At 15 years old. And it was interesting because I thought that I would be intimidated. But what was interesting was, here's what I loved, man. I could stay up till two in the morning. No one was going to say anything to me, right? Because I was working. There was bad language. There were knives. There was fire. I actually fit right into that culture. So I can tell you that for me, it actually felt great, to be honest, that I was being accepted into this world that I, that I, didn't know that I looked up to as much then. So, you know, I had a very different outlook on it. I, I'll be frank. I didn't know I shouldn't be on the grill at 15, right? That's something I realized down the road. I just thought, hey, this is where everybody starts. Um, so I can tell you that it was as intimidating as I thought it was going to be. It actually was the first time that I felt welcomed in a place in a long time. That's amazing. You know, because I just think about the kitchens I've like, I've never actually cooked. I, you know, I've heard told this story before where I thought I wanted to be one of those celebrity chefs because I was hosting them at the Lowe's Hotel during Wine and Food Festival. Yeah. <laughs> and then I asked the chef to let me get in there and he put me on the grill. And I was like, I can't handle this. I, I learned very quickly after a week that it wasn't for me. So impressive for you to know it right off the bat. I appreciate um, that. You know, I've been fortunate. My family has really been in food and beverage my whole life. So the interesting part is, I knew that I wanted to be in restaurants when I was six years old. 
I mean, I don't know how I knew that, but I just knew that's what I wanted to do. I was a latchkey kid as a, as a child. And I remember one day my mother was out working and I was watching Julia Child. And I remember this vividly like it was yesterday. And Julia Child was making a quiche. And my mother was a big cook at the time. And she had par cooked a pie shell that, you know, day before or something of that nature. And I'm watching Julia. She's making a quiche. She's talking about, you know, par cooking pie shells. And I said, hey, I got one of those. And I remember going into the kitchen, making the egg portion of the quiche. And ultimately, my mother coming home and being like, wow, what, what the hell just happened? What did you do? But from that day on, it was kind of known between my family and myself that being in the kitchen is really where I wanted to be. I just never knew how to get there. That's amazing. And so were, when you said they were in hospitality or working in restaurants, they were in restaurants too, your, your parents? So my family today, my parents actually were not. The rest of my family, though, was. So uh, my grandfather was a pizza maker and owned grocery stores in Guatemala. My great-grandfather, actually, his name is Wilson Papineau, and you can look him up. Uh, he worked for the USDA, and he actually wrote a book called The Fruit Hunters. And he was actually a fruit hunter uh, in the late 1800s. His job was to go to Central and South America and find fruits and vegetables that we eat today. Well, he's responsible for bringing the avocado to the U.S. and has got his own avocado, actually. There's a there's a Papano avocado out there that is only grown in two places, and they're in two botanical gardens. One is in Miami, believe it or not, and the other one is in Honduras. But uh, so he was in food. And then today we own a small hotel in Guatemala. My, my cousins have a place in Lake Atitlan where I was responsible for supporting them with uh, with the vegan restaurant that we have down there. So that's my contribution to the family business. And then in Spain, we have uh, my family has numerous restaurants in Logroño, which is the capital of Rioja. So food and beverage has just been a part of our life. And when you grow up Hispanic, you know, to be frank, food and beverage and you know, I know you're in Miami and this is a big part of the culture. But, you know, food and beverage is really where where the family meets and, and that's where things get decided on. And that's where culture truly starts. So, again, food is Food and beverage, frankly, have just been a part of me since I was a kid. So I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I understand that clear. One, being here in Miami, but my mom's Venezuelan. So the family's always together and we're always celebrating that way. We just did that this past weekend. But oh, nice. Back to your story, man. So you're in Applebee's. How long are you in Applebee's? How long are you uh, grinding on the grill? Yeah, I'd say I was probably in Applebee's for about a year and a half, to be honest with you. And interestingly enough, you know, when you work at a chain restaurant as a kid, um, you start to realize that you don't make enough money. You know, I think I think my first salary, believe it or not, was probably five twenty five. Could have been even under five dollars at the time. So I ended up picking up another job at another chain restaurant and really started to kind of get into that scene. And in Doral on Eighty Seventh Avenue, uh, you know, all the chain restaurants seemed to be down there. So we all kind of bounced around from the chains. But when I turned seventeen, you know, I, I was still unfortunately work was just honestly funding my passion for bad things at the time. So unfortunately, you know, when I was 17, I started to decide that, hey, you know what? I'm a kid. I'm working. I'm doing things that I shouldn't be doing from a food and beverage perspective, right? I was a little ahead of my time. So unfortunately, you know, it took me a couple of years to understand and got in a little bit more trouble. Look, I, I unfortunately was someone that used to think that, uh, it was very easy to get into someone else's car and drive it from Massachusetts to Florida. And I was and I was the guy doing that. And unfortunately, I ended up getting in trouble. I was still a minor at the time. And I think at that point, my father kind of, you know, he, he taught me a pretty hard lesson. And I remember he showed up at the juvenile detention center in Jacksonville, Florida. That's where I was caught. 
And he showed up and he sits down and I, I was just a punk. And I remember saying something to him and I won't repeat here, but I remember him getting up and walking away and he didn't come back for seven and a half months. And I found out later that he could have taken me home that day. But when I gave him a little bit of an attitude, he went back and asked the juvenile judge, hey, what do I do? And they had a conversation and he decided that that seven and a half months was probably worth it. I can tell you that when he picked me up after seven and a half months, the next thing I did pretty shortly after that was uh, I was able to get my GED and I joined the Marine Corps at the time. And my grandfather was in the Marine Corps. So it was uh, it was a, you know, kind of an easy way to, to say, hey, let, let me get some discipline in my life. And believe it or not, I walked into the recruiting office and I asked them if I could be a cook in the Marine Corps. And they almost fell off their seat because usually they're giving those assignments to people that don't know what they want to do. So honestly, you know, I worked in restaurants in Miami up until got in trouble and then ended up going into the Marine Corps as a as a cook. And frankly, that was really where the only formal education I've ever received was in the Marine Corps. Um, But it changed my life completely. You know, it, it, it not only gave me the discipline, but honestly, it gave me a sense of place and who I was. And I think that was a big problem for me growing up is that I never really knew who I was. So the Marine Corps gave me that, that ability. So I did, I did that. Uh, and I started to, I think, really understand leadership at that point. So I, after the Marine Corps, I ultimately uh, came out of the Marine Corps and very quickly because of, I think, my leadership style and honestly, my story, I started to move up in this world pretty quickly. Uh, I got out of the Marine Corps. I actually ended up joining the Coast Guard after the Marine Corps for two years just because I wanted to do something different. But I was on a positive path. And I can tell you that after that, my first job was as a corporate sous chef for a company here in Massachusetts. And frankly, I- I've never looked back from there. I love that you shared so much of that story because it's a unique one. That's why I was excited to talk to you. You know, I want to move back to where, you know, your got in trouble, your dad leaves you there. Was that something you're like, man, I was doing, I want to be a cook. That's what I want to be when I get out of here, when you were thinking there, or is that like, all right, man, I just got to get out of here and behave. I'm glad you asked that question because no one ever does. And, and listen, here, here's the funny part is that the biggest thing that I missed was not my friends. I hate to say this, not my family. It was the camaraderie and the feeling that I had in the kitchen. And look, for someone like myself, the kitchen kind of provided an outlet to be bad in, in a way, right? Again, you know, bad language, late nights, you know, um, without getting in trouble, right? And I really missed that, you know, and it was awkward because I remember sitting in juvenile detention, going to, you know, class every day. And the only thing I missed was, Jesus Christ, I just want to cook another steak, you know? And it was amazing. But to be frank, I didn't know when I got out how to do that. And I, and, and I was very embarrassed, you know, to be fair. I didn't know it was embarrassed that I was embarrassed at the time. But now looking back, yeah, I think I was extremely embarrassed. I didn't want to be around my peers per se. So I think going into the military was almost an easy out to kind of get away and disappear for a little while and really focus on myself, my health. And, and, and that that truly was what I was thinking about when I was locked up was how do I get back into cooking again? And that was truly the only thing I missed at the time. <laughs> Man, I appreciate you sharing that. So when you're in the Marines, what's it like there? Because you said you wanted to be a cook, so I'm sure you go through all of your your training. But what is the kitchen like there? Is it just like mess hall stuff or is it very regimented? Like what is it like cooking in, in the Marines? Depends on how good you are. I'll be honest, Steve, right? You know, if you're not that good of a cook, chances are you're probably going to end up in a mess hall. And, and it's not that you're a bad cook and you end up in a mess hall as punishment is that you end up going to a place where you can be 
mentored and taught and someone can really watch you, right? That, that's really the thing. I graduated number one in my class. You know, again, I was never a stupid kid, man. Uh, you know, when I left high school, didn't graduate. When I left high school, I mean, I was like 3.5, 3.6 GPA. It wasn't that I wasn't good. I just didn't like it. So, so ultimately, uh, in that respect, I was really good at what I did at, at, at the military school. And I ended up, uh, you know, being assigned to smaller mess halls and or, you know, cooking for specific high ranking individuals. So for me, I'll be frank, it was not stressful. Uh, I wasn't under fire. And I frankly was in the Marine Corps prior to 9-11. And it was actually pretty awesome to, to be to be honest with you. It was, uh, you know, I got the title of, of being a United States Marine, which is amazing. I got to, you know, go to Marine combat school and learn, you know, all this fun, cool tactical stuff. Uh, but the reality was my goal was to learn how to cook and have a certificate. And I knew I was never going to do that in college. So that was truly the goal when I went in there. That's awesome. So you come out and you start off at which restaurant? Tell me, you came in like at a corporate sous chef. So give me that. Yeah, yeah. So so you know, just real quick, I get out after 9-11 and I realized that shit, 9-11 just happened. And <laughs> the reality was I wanted, I, at that point, I really wanted to go back in, right? It was just, you know, just that American kind of sense of pride. And the Coast Guard was looking for anti-terrorism teams. And because I was in the Marine Corps, I remember walking into the office. And I'll be frank, I would, I would have cooked in the Coast Guard as well. Walked into the office. Oh, you're a Marine. Well, listen, we've got these, these teams coming up. And they guaranteed me to be a boat driver on a tiny fast boat with machine guns. So, you know, at that age. Sounds you know, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I did that for two years. I will tell you, I miss cooking every day of my life. But, but I will tell you that what it really did for me was it honed my leadership abilities. It really, you know, at that age, when you're responsible for other people, you know, as, and, and I was what was called a boat coxswain. But if you're responsible for other people and you start to be responsible, you know, for people's life, that impacts you pretty quickly and, and you grow really fast. So I did that for two years. And then when I ended up getting out, the first job I get is at a restaurant company here in Massachusetts called Stone Forge Restaurant Group. At the time, they had two restaurants. We opened up three more for them. But again, remember, I, I didn't go in as a, as a line cook or a sous chef or a supervisor. You know, I went in and they, they said, hey, we need someone at the corporate level who can really you know, help us streamline current operations and open new, ho- or open new restaurants. Um, so that's what I did right out of the military, immediately into a corporate role. And to be frank, you know, it was probably above my my skill set and above my pay grade. But, you know, when you're when you're a military guy and, and, and frankly, when you're someone who at 15 has the ability to kind of say, you know what, I'm going to live life on my own. I don't need anybody any else. It wasn't that hard to jump into a leadership role like that. And I'm a very hands on person. I mean, even to this day, you'll still find me, you know, whether it's now cooking for my CEO or other, you know, VIP events, the reality is I still put my chef coat on. So for me, moving right into Stoneforge was was great because not only did I have an above property position pretty young, but I was also able to get in the kitchen when and where I wanted to. So I always chose to go into the kitchens where, you know, maybe we're a little more upscale. We had a, we had a place called the, the, the Stoneforge Public House, which was the upscale version. I found myself spending a lot of time there because I hadn't really done a lot of higher end food and upscale food, but I was able to pick and choose how to do that. So, you know, I'd knock on wood because I've had fortunate positions where I could kind of control my destiny. So that's, that's, that's exactly how I started to immerse myself and continue to get better and continue to become a better cook. Even though I didn't have years and years of experience in a Michelin star kitchen, I was able to really 
dig into places where I work because frankly, I, I could make those decisions. And that was unheard of at the time, but luckily it happened to me. So, so that's kind of how I started to, uh, to build my career at that point uh, through Stoneforge as a corporate chef when I was a kid. So That's amazing. You said you probably wouldn't hire that person today. So it just shows what kind of person you were coming up with that confidence to say, hey, I can do this. So I think that's the biggest thing. You said the word confidence. And I, you know, I, I tell a lot of the kids that I work with today, and, and when I say kids, you know, I, I'm talking about the young cooks that are just starting out. And it's interesting because I tell them all the time, and it's all about confidence. Half the battle, in fact, more than half the battle is about how you present yourself and the confidence that you have. And it's interesting because when I, you know, I don't get to hire that many cooks anymore, but even at the, even at the, the food and beverage director level, it's really interesting when someone walks in and just presents themselves in the most confident way, because the reality is this, they may not have the skill set that I'm looking for, but if they come in with the confidence and the attitude, I may look over some of those opportunities because of their confidence and their ability to get to that level. I think a lot of times we get very caught up in, in people having the experience on paper and we, we don't ever pay attention a lot of times to their confidence level, their attitude. How do they approach us? How, if they're on a Zoom call, how are they communicating with you? You know, frankly, those are the things that I look for, but confidence to me, if you have confidence, you're probably 60% closer to being hired with me just because of your confidence. <laughs> Today, I'm very excited to have Laura Barbieri, a corporate human resource director and executive coach here joining us. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Steve. I'm, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. What I love about your journey is that you started off as a housekeeper in Marriott and 20 Years later, you're with Marriott, but at one of the highest levels in HR running all of Mexico. But it looks like a, a decision was made at some point where you left Marriott and you joined a different company. Tell me about that. Was that a hard decision? Was it an easy decision? What was that like for you? It was a super hard decision because I was in Mexico. And at that time, there were like I've been in the market that I director of human resources for a while and I was nothing else coming not for me for anyone I was calling my colleagues in different parts of the region or US or nobody was moving it was the year the crisis you know like things like this happened and suddenly I get a call for an equity fund in Mexico very well known big that owns different companies they want me to they wanted to meet with me because they bought one of the biggest retail companies and they needed a corporate director of HR. So, okay, it was Mexico. I was already been there for years. I lived 13 years in Mexico. Um, so I say, I think I have to, I have to listen to this. I never listened to any, any interview or if someone called me like, to know me or for an interview, I was only, oh, I'm not interested. For some reason, I went because I heard the name of the people that were contacting me. Uh, and I wanted to see if it was true, by the way. And I say, if nothing happened, that's okay. I'm fine with what I'm doing and I'm going to enjoy the coffee. <laughs> so I met the owners and the big investors and the equity fund. And I realized who they were and how important they were in Mexico. So I decided to take the corporate director of HR role 
for all the retail division for that company. And it was a different jump. It was a big jump up, but different because I my conversations were not about beds, F&B, kitchen, or it was different. It was about sales. It was about clothes, shoes, everything that they own. And we have more than 200 stores around in Mexico. So it was a really a country role. Which brand was this? I know it's Nexus Capital, but what brands were they overseeing? They have uh, the Nexus Capital on many companies. So they read everything that they buy and the retail, they put it under one company called Moda Holding. And we have, for example, shoes from the company Dorothy Gaynor with a lot of stores along the country, one of the biggest companies there. We have uh, Singara, another brand for different type of clothes, um, very high end, very expensive as well. And some other companies that they were acquiring and putting under the umbrella of Moda Holding, everything that was related with uh, retail. So what was it like making that change? Because hotel is, hospitality is one way of thinking, but HR, like you kind of said, it's kind of laws and making sure you hold things accountable and setting up, you know, goals and achievements. Was it still like that for you or was it like, oh, I'm lost a little bit at the beginning? No, I was not lost. I was, I connected very well with the purpose of everything. Basically, they're very focused on numbers. Maybe, no, maybe not for sure. They were 100% focused on, 99% focused on numbers. <laughs> yeah. Probably. Um, then, of course, very concerned about the quality, about the, how they treat the customers. That's why I help a lot with the training and putting something together. Uh, payroll was super difficult. Number of employees were more than oof, a lot and growing all the time. More than a sales force of 5,000 employees uh, only for retail stores. But for me, being an office, seeing all that information and grabbing everything and being able to modify, for example, in retail, you modify an incentive program. Uh, a bonus that they get for the stuff that they sell. And you can see the next week a report when the sales went up. So it's very sensitive. If you do, if you give the right incentive, you can see the sales automatically going up or down. If the company is doing something well, automatically, different than hotels. So I really like a lot that part. But traveling was a lot. Because I was in for the I was in charge of the whole country. My team was huge. We were almost thirty employees in HR, but some of them traveling as well along the. And we have the industry, the factories, and the production centers as well were located in Cancun. So I was living between Mexico, Cancun, and other places. So I think I spent almost two years in a plane. Wow. Literally visiting every single city, stores, production centers, factories, and and everything. But it was a lot. It was was a that lot. what you wanted, or was it like this is too much? And it was I, too I much. Find yes, I realized it, it was too much. It was too much because of the number of trips. So besides that, I've always been studying. 
I did my two bachelor's degree. I did a master's that I finished in Mexico. I have to change school all the time. Every time I was leaving a country, I have to enroll again in the university to continue another bachelor's degree, do my test again, continue studying, do my master, studying in one country, finishing another one. So I needed to finish the master, which was done, but I was very involved at that time in coaching and getting my certification with the ICF, which is International Coaching Federation from here in US. So I really decided to leave and finish my certifications and enjoy the fact of being focused in finishing the studies and get my license because traveling, studying, and doing everything that I do, it was a lot. Yeah, it's Besides a hard choice. That, I get, that I do a lot of sports. So, right. of course, it's a very important part of my life. So I need to combine of those. And so I left. And they're all amazing people. Learn a lot from all of them uh, for ha- the way they do business in places like Mexico. But I really wanted to explore more about coaching because I got the certification. And after like three years that I've been trying to get, and I say, you know what? I want to explore more about this. And... In the meantime, I will be a coach, life coach, executive coach. I was already have a master in neurolinguistic programming. So I started combining coaching with neurolinguistic. So I was able to connect with my clients. That's how we call the people in coaching. We call them clients, no patients or customers. Yeah. They're not patients because they don't have patients. That's what they go to the coach. <laughs> right. That's true. And I'm a big I'm a big believer in having coaches and having that someone in your life that is like that. And so, you know, how did you go and find your clients? Because it's hard. A lot of people think they want to start their own business and have their own practice of something. How did you start? Did you have somebody already that you were doing it with and it just kind of grew into your first client? Or you say, hey, hey everybody, I'm a coach now. Put it out to the world. This is what I'm doing. Yeah. So my clients were pro bono. So <laughs> I... <laughs> Because I was doing to get more practice, and now I have to put my. I did my web page uh, at that time, which it's always updated because I, I'm always doing coaching to someone. I do mentorship as well, but it is more for companies that, for individuals. No, put yourself out there is, uh, is difficult, especially like every new business. Everyone is saying, oh, yeah, let's do it. You have to do it. You're going to be the perfect coach. I'm going to help you. But when you really need to pay the bills, it's like, uh, hey, hello. Remember the conversation we have about like you were going <laughs> to. Uh, I start visiting my colleagues in HR. They, they, they are the ones that help me more because I could be in some companies doing coaching. So that is a good start more than individuals and of course i like individuals as well everybody knows me in mexico like an executive coach but believe me Steve, i was doing life coach with every single person until today even if the ceo of the company when you are one-on-one with a person they don't talk about business they don't want to they connect with themselves a lot and that is the part that you start enjoying because first they don't want to coach because they say, why Why they told me that I need a coach? Because HR bought me a package for sessions for the executives. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So and then they they like it. They they like it. They they value that the company is doing that for them. So yes, HR colleagues uh, are the ones that help me more to get to cl- those clients. And then of course they start knowing me and recommend me and and getting to know more individuals in different situations. Awesome. I love it. I think it's a good tool for anybody to have, especially as you're growing in your career, to have that person to talk to and help set goals and to help achieve what you want. I've had it and it's a big help for me. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm excited about this part of your story because you go into coaching, you take the time for yourself, right, to finish your studies, to get your coaching done. But I love this part where you come back to a familiar name, right? You come back <laughs> to a familiar place. And you end up back with Marriott as a senior director of human resources here in my hometown of Miami. How does that happen? You know, you don't see that too often of leaving and coming no, back. No, you don't see that too often. At that time, I was already been before that. I was already almost 25, 20, 23 years with Marriott. So everyone that see me, okay, they know my name. They know what I do, everything. But the first thing they do, oh, you are the person from Marriott. I mean, it's like if I have the name here, like in a tattoo in my forehead, it's like, so I found this um, this offer they made to me very interesting because I was doing, they call me as a coach, but many people call me because they know me for HR. So I say, oh, she was going in HR, maybe she's good as a coach. I guess so, that, that was what was in their minds. Since, of course, I need any type of, coach or slash consulting, I started doing it as well. It was not my intention to be a HR consultant. So that's how I went back and came to Miami. Okay, and do coaching plus slash I don't have coaching, but they want me to do some HR consulting or to help with something very specific. So I did it in Mexico and I started doing it in Miami until one of the companies say, hey, you, thank you for the consulting. Yeah, it was an amazing job, and they offered me the position for senior director of human resources here in Miami. So at that time, I was not, I mean, there are things that happen in your career that you're not expecting, and there are others that you're expecting. When you're expecting, you say yes. And guess what? When you're not expecting and something happened to you, go and say yes. Just ask yourself. Is it a better position? Is it a better place? I'm going to make more money. I'm going to have more fun. And if the answer is yes, go for it. So I just called my husband from Miami. He's Mexican. Where he was in Mexico. I was traveling as always. And I say, hey, by the way, I'm coming by this weekend. I just finished the consulting part, but they offer me something. So I'm going to be staying next week, trying to understand more in detail the offer and let you know, but before I decide to stay and hear about what they have to offer, I need to hear from you. Do you want to move if everything goes well, or you don't want to leave? Because I'm always ready, but I have to ask. And he said, yes, whatever is good for your career, you're going to be good deciding for yourself, and you're good deciding for both of us. So I stay and I say yes. But I have a lot of support from him at that time. So that the, meant the, the war for me. That's amazing to hear. Having a supportive partner in this industry is very important. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea 
to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome.